Well, if you would, would take a Bible and turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We were off last week due to vacation Bible school, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're, going, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for a good while. We're not in any rush, not in any hurry. We're just going to take a verse at a time or verses at a time. But tonight, tonight we're going to look at verses 17 through 20 and actually verses 17 through 19. We won't really get any further than that. and We'll have to keep verse 20 for our next time. But uh, we'll start reading in verse 17. Jesus is speaking. and He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the last time we were together, we looked at the block of verses 13 through 16. And you'll remember maybe, and just remind you that we we concluded that uh, the church, Christians, we're, the church, we are kind of like a city within a city. We uh, we are countercultural. Uh, we uh, we do not march to the beat of our culture. Uh, we are hopefully walking in step with what Jesus has laid out here in the Sermon on the Mount. We are a people. We're a people of God. We're recognized not only by what we say, but how we live our lives. And the question we asked at the end of our time, the last time we were together, was how do the people of this city, the, the, the kingdom of God, how do the people of the kingdom of God live? What does it look like? And that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about. When you read verses 13 through 16, it talks about being a city on a hill, talks about being salt and light. And so Jesus is laying the foundation for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to say, how do you know this, this people of a counterculture, how do people of the kingdom, how do, how do they live, what does it look like? The rest of the Sermon on the Mount describes that. Now in verse 17, we have to ask a question first. Why does Jesus say this? Why does he say, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why does Jesus say this? It's just like all of a sudden. He, you know, he's been talking about being salt and light, and blessed are this, blessed are this. All of a sudden he says, Don't you think? Now, it certainly appears by that statement that Jesus is responding to an accusation. Uh, you might remember this, this last Sunday we looked at the life of Stephen. And you remember there were two things that he was accused of. He was accused of speaking against the temple 
and speaking against the law. And though, though, though Stephen was doing neither, I mean, he was not really speaking against them. He was helping to show how Jesus had fulfilled them. Uh, but you can see how easy it can be for people to speak up and, and say and accuse you of speaking against the law. And so Jesus is obviously answering perhaps accusations. He said, do not, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus might be accused of this because at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said nothing about the law and the importance of keeping it. Nothing yet. So imagine, you know, imagine you're listening. You're kind of standing there, ears are open, you're paying attention to what Jesus is saying. And so far, he's not said a thing about the law, the Old Testament law. He's not said a thing about it, not, not, not even encouraged the keeping of it. And he was certainly, Jesus was certainly teaching that the way of salvation and entry into the kingdom of God was not by merit or through, through keeping the law. It was by grace. And so, naturally, the, the potential was Jesus was going to be accused of trying to abolish or do away with the law. Especially, and I want to read this verse to you, especially uh, when you read something like this in Mark chapter 7, it said this. And here's what Jesus said. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then right after Jesus says that, Mark, it's in parenthesis, Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, here, here's Jesus out among the people teaching, hey, look, it's, it's, you know, what, what you eat and goes into your body doesn't defile you. And can you imagine devout Jews saying, wait a minute, we're, we're not supposed to eat shellfish. The Old Testament law says we can't do that. And we, we can't eat pork. The Old Testament law says we can't do that. And so Jesus makes this kind of a statement. And then Mark prefaces it by saying, basically Jesus was saying that all foods are clean. That would sound a lot like that Jesus was abolishing the law. But he says here in verse 17 that he wasn't. Now, here's, here's what I want you to think about for a minute. These passages that we're looking at here, in verse 17 especially, are far more important than we might realize at first. You look at, these, you look at this verse and you think, well, okay, I, Jesus said this, but what's the big deal? It's a big deal because this subject forces us to deal with the place of God's law in the life of a Christian. It forces us to... In other words, what place does God's law have in the life of a Christian? Does it have a place at all? And if it does have a place, what kind of a place? Because as New Testament Christians, we know we're, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not through keeping dietary laws or ceremonial laws, not through that. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But on the other hand, does that mean that we don't have to pay any attention to God's law. So where does the law of God fit in the life of a Christian? Another way of putting it is this. 
just how does Christ's teachings in the New Testament relate to the teachings in the Old Testament? Does does what he says in the New Testament just abolish everything in the Old Testament? Uh, Or does it do something else? Now, believers, believers are often confused about the role of God's law in their lives. And if, you get, if we get this wrong, here's what happens. If, if, if we get this wrong, you fall into one of two ditches. You fall into the ditch of lawlessness, which is to say, we don't have to worry about God's law. We don't have to, do, we don't have to pay attention to God's law. That would be lawlessness, see? Or you can fall into the other ditch that would say, oh, man, man we got, we got, we got to keep all of the laws, we, we, you know, even the dietary laws. Even, and, and then you fall into legalism. So what we want to try to do is stay on the road. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to stay on the road. Throughout the years, there have been people who have tried to get rid of the Old Testament due to the fact of what we're talking about tonight. During the second century, there was a man named Marcion. You can get online, you can check this out. A man named Marcion, he rewrote the New Testament by eliminating any Old Testament references, okay? So he rewrote the New Testament and eliminated, getting rid of any references to the Old Testament. Some of his disciples even went further by exchanging the verbs in verse 17 here. You, you have verse 17 in front of you. They, they went as far as to change the verbs so it would read this way. I have come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. <laughs> so changed it entirely. Changed it entirely. So, so that, that was in the second century. But today, today, if you're listening out there, in the, in the, even in the, in the Christian world, uh, most of you are familiar with a, a, a preacher named Andy Stanley, um, Charles Stanley's son, has a rather large, large church in uh, Georgia. A lot of people listen to Andy Stanley. Just recently, he got into some really hot water, but he's been wading out into it a little bit at a time. And he made this statement just a few weeks ago that Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. And he's in a lot of hot water over this. Uh, and, but, but see, there, there's, there's, here, here's, why, here, here's part of the reason why I said it. It's like, Old Testament has, you know, in his way of thinking, Old Testament has a lot of problems, a lot of, a lot of questions, a lot of issues that we, we don't want to mess with those. We don't mess with them. And so we just need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament. We need to unhitch ourselves from it and distance ourselves from the Old Testament. But here's what you need to ask. Does Jesus do that? Does Jesus unhitch himself from the Old Testament? Does he distance himself from the Old Testament? No. In fact... You can, you can see in verses 18 and 19 that he does not do that at all. In fact, it appears that Jesus is in full support of God's law. Notice he, he says in verse 19, Therefore, who relax, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So... Um, we, we, here's what we can say so far. Jesus is in full support of the Old Testament law. Full support of it. He's not unhitching himself from it. He's not trying to erase it away, not trying to abolish it. He's come, he said, to fulfill it. Uh, one of the reasons why that there's often a conflict between grace and law is because, first, 
we, we often misunderstand the purposes of the law. Secondly, people redefine grace as something other than God's benevolence on the undeserving. Uh, others try to, uh, they, they get a confusion between grace and the law when they try to earn God's salvation or earn their own salvation on, uh, by supplementing uh, Christ's sacrifice. In other words, you know, well, I'll trust Christ, I'll trust what he's done, but I better, I better not eat pork or I, you know, I, better, I better keep something else over here just to make sure I'm okay. Uh, so, uh, but, but one of the biggest reasons, one of the biggest reasons there is confusion between grace and law is a failure to focus on the whole counsel of God. In other words, to look, look, in other words put it this way, looking at the big picture rather than just looking at an isolated verse here or there. So here's what we want to do tonight. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. So that ought to cause us to say, look, law's got a place. The law's got some place in the Christian's life. It's got a place. We just got to figure out what is that place. And the second thing we want to think about is how did Christ fulfill the law? Okay? Now, I think in your notes, and I put this in there because some say that these distinctions help. And that is the distinction between the civil laws, ceremonial laws, and the moral laws. Uh, notice in your notes, there were civil laws which governed the nation of Israel, encompassing not only behaviors, but also punishments for crimes. So when you read in uh, Leviticus, uh, De Deuteronomy, you'll, you'll, you'll run across all of these laws, these civil laws of how the nation of Israel was to operate, how it was to function, how people were to get along with one another. But then you'll also find ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws about clean and unclean things. Read in Leviticus, you'll read a lot of this, the unclean and clean. Uh, these were about various kinds of sacrifices and other temple practices, okay? And so ceremonial laws would include food laws as well, okay? But then there's also the moral laws. There were the moral laws which declared what God deemed right and wrong, and you, you could see that clearly in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So God is basically saying adultery is wrong, you see. Um, and so some say, some say and, and I hope maybe this helps, is making a distinction in your mind first about civil laws, the civil laws that God laid out for Israel, the ceremonial laws, and the moral laws. And so here's what we want to think about. We want to think about it in those terms tonight to help us to understand how Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. What that means is that every law pointed to him. When, when you read about the civil laws and the ceremonial laws and the moral laws, we have to first understand this. All of them are pointing to Jesus. Okay? All of them are pointing to Jesus, and we'll find their fulfillment in Jesus. He, he, the, all of the laws point to Jesus, and he completed everything that they pointed to. Thinking of Jesus as the fulfillment of the law helps us see why we keep some of the Old Testament commands and ignore others. Okay, Now, we're going to get to that in just a moment. We're going to see that there's some... Old Testament commands we keep. There's some we ignore. Okay? And we're going to helping seeing that Jesus fulfills them is going to help us to see why 
we keep some and ignore others. So let's take civil laws first, okay? Uh, for, exa- for, exa- for example, we are no longer bound by the civil laws that are in the book of Leviticus, for example, because God doesn't have a nation state on earth anymore. Okay? W- w- Israel was a nation state. And God was dealing specifically with that nation. You may say, well, why, why was he doing that way? So, so that his people would be special. They were gonna, here's, 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 how, here's how you're going to serve your God. Here's how you're going to live for your God versus all the other nations in the world at that time. So we are not, we are not bound by the civil codes in the book of Leviticus. Here's a good example. Adultery in the New Testament. Do you remember what the punishment for adultery was in the Old Testament? What was it? Stoning to death, right? Okay. Now, why don't we see that in the New Testament? In other words, why don't we have Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, why don't we have any of them saying that that's what we're supposed to do with adulterers in the New Testament and on? We don't see that. And it's because in the New Testament, it is dealt with through exhortation and church discipline. See? So there's a difference already. Okay? There's a difference. In the Old Testament, stone them to death. Okay? New Testament, not so. Dealing with it entirely different. So that tells us right there that we, we, are, not, we are not under the civil codes that are found in the book of Leviticus that, that have to do with the nation of Israel. Uh, next, the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws. The book of Hebrews shows us that the sacrifices were all fulfilled in Jesus' perfect life and death. One of the standout themes you find in the book of Hebrews, if you will start reading it, that uh, Jesus is the ultimate better sacrifice. All the other sacrifices all were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. If we accept Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, we do not need the lesser sacrifices anymore. In fact, it would actually be offensive to go back to them because that would communicate that Jesus Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. That is why, that is why, that the Catholic Mass is so abhorrent because it is a repeating of again and again of the sacrifice of Jesus over and over and over and over and over. And we read that Christ's sacrifice, his sacrificial life, his death, his atoning death was once and for all, you see. And so how, how ridiculous would it be for uh, for us to say, okay, trusting in Christ's sacrifice and trusting him, his, him being the ultimate sacrifice, uh, but uh, I, I, need, I, need to, uh, I need to follow uh, this. I, I, I need to make sure that I, that I do this or I, I don't eat this. Uh, or, or, you know, do, do you understand? See, to, to do that would be to demean the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. There's always been, now think about this with me for a minute, there's always been groups of Christians who believe that in order to honor God's authority in the Old Testament, 
we must continue to obey the food laws and other ceremonial laws lest we be found in disobedience. See, uh, goodness, I know, I know a person, um, for example, I know a person who, uh, who, who you know, is really struggling right now. They, 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 the, more, the more they look to Jesus, it is, it is like this is wonderful, this is so liberating, but they were raised up in an environment where the Sabbath day was was Saturday, of course, it's Saturday, but but that you had you you had to observe the Sabbath, see. And so, on one hand, he's 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 like looking to Jesus and like this is so great, but he still has this burden of this internal conscious burden of of I've I've got I've got to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I've got I've got I'm, I should be worshiping on Saturday, you see. And that's again, you know, Seventh Day Adventist. And so, there, there, you know, there's there's this struggle that people have. It's, it's like I want to I want to trust Christ. They want to they, they 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 want to lay their hope in Christ. But then it's like, but they're still trying to hang on to something over here. And there's a good impulse on that, but there's also a bad impulse. The good impulse is the desire to obey God. See, that's a good that's a good impulse to say I wanted I want to obey God. That should be what we want to do. But the bad impulse is the failure to obey Christ who teaches us how to obey God in regard to the Old Testament. In other words, the bad impulse fails, fails to see Jesus as the fulfillment uh, of the law and the prophets, just, just like he says here. He's, he's the fulfillment of these things. And so the, the bad impulse, again, would be not to see, not to understand that Jesus fulfills. Let me give you an example. The effort to hold on to a prohibition of, say, eating pork, in effect, is a refusal to submit to God's plan for the fulfillment of the law in Jesus. Now, if you say, if you say, I don't eat pork for health reasons, that's fine, okay? But to say, I, I'm not going to eat pork because the Old Testament says not to. Uh, what, you're, what you're basically saying, in effect, is... You are, instead of obeying God, which you think you are, <laughs> you, you say, well, I'm, I'm just obeying God. God said, don't do this. In effect, you are disobeying God and not submitting to God's plan for the fulfillment of the law in Jesus. You understand? That, that makes sense. See, see where, where some might, might say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fulfilling the law. I'm fulfilling God's law. I'm, 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 I'm obeying God because I'm not eating pork. Actually, you're disobeying God and not submitting to God's plan for the fulfillment of the law in Jesus. If you embrace eating pork, and I mean, you keep using that, but if you, if you embrace eating pork as a, a new law, a new, and, and, and that it's a necessity for justification. In other words, your real motive is, you know, I'll, I'll trust Jesus. Okay, I'm, I'm good with it. I'll believe in Jesus, but... But also, I'm going to double down, and I'm going to really make sure here by not eating pork. You're basically you're, you're including the abstinence from pork as part of your justification before God, and and you're, what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off from Christ. It's that serious. That's what that's what the Book of Galatians makes clear. You're cutting yourself off from Jesus to add to Jesus to add add any other stipulations for justification outside of Jesus by grace through faith in Jesus. You're cutting yourself off from Jesus, and that's why this is so important that we get it right. What part 
You know, where does the law, what kind of place does it have in the life of the Christian? So, you have the civil laws. We're, we're not under those. Ceremonial laws, all have been fulfilled in Jesus. But what about the moral law? Now, here's where it gets where we need to really pay careful attention. Civil law, ceremonial law. What about moral law? The moral law is also fulfilled in Jesus. He kept all of the moral law perfectly, every day, always, for his entire life. Establish that first. Jesus fulfilled the moral law, keeping it perfectly. But, unlike the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, which were more time-bound, and what we mean by time-bound is they were for a specific time and era and people. Okay? Uh, the moral laws, on the other hand, were not time-bound. They reflected God's assessment of good and evil and right and wrong. The moral law reflects God's character, and his character does not change. In other words, if coveting was a sin in the Old Testament, and it's a reflection of God's character to say, thou shalt not covet, then what would that mean now? Would that, would that still be a sin now? Yes. Why? Because it's based on the character of God, and his character does not change. There's, there's no longer a nation state as there was in the Old Testament, no longer a nation state now, okay? Uh, that's changed, but what hasn't changed is God's character. And that is why that... Uh, God's views on morality have not changed. In fact, whenever Jesus mentions the moral laws, he either reaffirms them or intensifies them. And that's what we're going to see a little later in the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about adultery, and it's kind of like, hey, you want to pat yourself on the back because you, you haven't committed adultery, but what about adultery in your heart? Now, what's he doing there? He's intensifying the law, see? He's reaffirming it, but he's also intensifying it. But he's certainly not abolishing it. And see, here's where you need to listen carefully. Here's what we have been hearing for a number of years, but we're, we really hear it a whole lot now. Uh, we, we, they will say this. You Christians, you, you, you Christians pick out homosexuality, but not other laws. In other words, you Christians look to the book of Leviticus as to what it says about homosexuality and about how it condemns homosexuality. But, but what about shellfish? It says don't eat shellfish. But you all go and eat shellfish anyway. It, it, it's, it says that you all are, are not supposed to uh, wear clothes of mixed fabrics. That's a law. But you, you, you do it. So why, why do you Christians pick this one to, oh, you know, this one to real harp on, but not these. Why is that? Why is that? Is not eating shellfish a moral law 
or is it a ceremonial law? It's a ceremonial law. Is the sin of homosexuality, is it a, is, is it a moral law or a ceremonial law? It's a moral law, you see. Okay? Civil laws, ceremonial laws, all fulfilled in Christ. Moral laws fulfilled in Christ, yet, yet at the same time, we still see, because they are based on the character of God, they're not bound by a certain time or era. They are the same always. And so, don't fall for, don't fall for this, you know, oh, well, you all are just picking and choosing. No, no, we're, we're, we're not picking and choosing in the sense that we're saying, look, I'll, well, I like this one, but I don't like this one. That is not at all the case. So, Jesus has fulfilled the law. He says that here. He's fulfilled the law and the prophets. So now the question is, what is the Christian's relationship to the law? In other words, Jesus has fulfilled it. So some might be able to argue and go, well, if Jesus fulfilled it all, what in the world we got to fool with keeping laws? Why, why do we have to do that? Turn over to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment, okay? Romans chapter 6. By the way, there, there are, there are, and we, I guess it's been over a year ago, we, we, took, uh, we took some time to go over a, a study uh, on the, the uh, movement called Free Gracers. And uh, Free Gracers are those who, uh, uh, the, the, they are folks who have fallen into the ditch of antinomianism. Okay? That, because antinomianism means no law, lawlessness. No law. So we, we, have to, we don't have to obey the law. Don't worry about it. Uh, and, and so those who say such a thing often look at Romans chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, to, to get some kind of scriptural basis for their belief. So let's, let's look at these verses. Paul writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Are, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. So in verse 14 and verse 15, the statement is, you are not under law. Now, boy, we better know what that means because at first glance, it seems to affirm we're under grace. We don't have to worry about no laws. Law says thou shalt not covet. We don't have to worry about that. <laughs> that, already, that already sounds stupid, doesn't it? Thou, thou shalt not commit adultery. I don't have to worry about that. That sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? I mean, right off the bat, we should go, wait a minute, something sounds wrong with that. So what's it mean that we are not under law? To be, first off, let's, let's ask it this way. What, what would it mean to be under law. What, what, what does Paul mean by being under law? He says we're not. Okay, but what would it mean to be under law? To be under the law refers not to law obeying, but to law relying. Now, what's the difference? 
law obeying is different than law relying. Relying, if, if I, I can obey the law, I can obey the law out of delight, joy, uh, want to please God, or I can obey the law out of I'm going to do this and God will accept me. I'm going to I'm going to not I'm going to not eat pork. I'm going to I'm going to abstain from this. I'm going to not do these things and then he'll accept me. He'll love me. He'll he'll I'm law relying, see. I'm not relying. I'm not relying on Jesus. I'm re, I'm relying on law. And so being under law refers not to law obeying, but law relying. Now, if you take that sentence, you can automatically see, oh, oh yeah, we're not under law. We're not in that sense, right? So it's not, it's not, it's, Paul's not saying that we're not obligated to obey the law. We're just not relying on the law. When we think we can win God's approval through our moral performance and obedience, it becomes a crushing burden, and we're under the law. You know, you got a picture of I'm under it. I'm under it. It's crushing me. Under the law in the sense that we are relying upon the law. And so that's what Paul means there when he says we're not under the law. We're not, we're not relying on the law for justification. We're not relying upon the law for God's acceptance. But where does the place of law have in our lives? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's take a look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Really helpful. And let's take a look at that verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 21. And this is going to help you know, from here on. Next ten minutes, here on we're going to see, you know, just just what place does God's law have? First Corinthians chapter nine verse twenty one, Paul said this: To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Then he he puts in parentheses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So. What, what is Paul meaning here when he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then, he, then he, he clarifies, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So what, what is he referring to here? Though he, Paul, Paul's saying, though he is not under the law as a way to earn salvation, he's not relying, okay, he's not relying upon the law, he now is freed to see the beauties of God's law as fulfilled in Christ and submits to it as a way of loving the Savior. That's what he means by, he's not, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he's not, he's not, he's not under the law as, as relying upon it, but he's under the law of Christ. Now, did you notice how he clarifies that? He's not subject to the old Jewish law, but he's still under the law of Christ. Now, James makes the same distinction over in uh, chapter 2, and I want to read it for you. He makes the same, same distinction 
in, uh, in, in, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Let me read it aloud for you. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit a murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged uh, to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, what we can see here is this, how, how significant it was for Jesus. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, I give you a new what? A new commandment, right? I give you a new commandment. So what is this new commandment of Christ? It was what? Love one another, right? Love one another. When we... Let me just read this for you. When we truly love God and love each other, in faith in Christ and through the power of the Spirit, we fulfill the law. When we, when we love God and love one another, we fulfill the law. Not only that, but when we view the Old Testament legal instructions through the lens of Christ's law of love, we're able to distinguish easily between the unchanging moral requirements of God and the temporary civil and ceremonial laws for the people of Israel. Once again, distinction made there, you see, the, the moral the moral commandments continue continue on and we we find Jesus affirming them and intensifying them and we're called to obey them if you love someone will you murder them you won't if if you if you if you're under the the law of love you will not murder them in fact Jesus says we won't even have hatred in our hearts toward them if you love your spouse will you commit adultery no. No, we won't even entertain lustful thoughts about someone else if we're truly loving. If we love God, we will worship something or someone in his place. Uh, or, or I should say, if we love God, will we worship something or someone in his place? And so, again, that, that's why Jesus said, new commandment I give you, love one another. Well, good grief. Shouldn't we have something more than that? No. Well, if we love one another, we won't. If we really love one another, we won't do this to one another. We won't murder someone. We won't do this. I think this is in your notes, and I hope this is helpful. Jesus didn't come to free us from the law. He came to free us from sin. Our freedom in Christ is freedom from sin, not freedom to ignore the holiness of God. So any kind of teaching that suggests that we just love Jesus, just love Jesus, don't worry about the moral commands, don't worry about those things, don't worry about holiness, that would be a dangerous false teaching. Jesus brings us freedom, but it's not freedom to ignore the holiness of God. Our freedom is a freedom 
for holiness, not a freedom from holiness. Jesus kept the law perfectly, and those who believe in him are born again into a new life, into his life. The righteousness of Christ is imparted to all those who believe, and the Holy Spirit lives permanently in their hearts. I don't think there's a better set of verses. If someone, if someone was to say to you, or if you were to ask, I wonder what I'm supposed to do with the law of God. I wonder what I'm supposed to do with that. I, you know, should, I, should I be concerned about keeping it now that I've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus? Should I be concerned about the law, or is it really that important? And if it is, how important is it? I don't think there's a better verse that nails it down than the, the promise of a new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you'll turn over there, we'll, we'll try to wrap up there. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I don't think there's a better uh, verse, really, for establishing this. And at least God's saying to us, here's how, here's, here's how I want you to live. Ezekiel 36, and we'll look at verses 26 through 27. I will give you, this is God's promise, the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, it, it, it's you know it'd be difficult to to, to misread that. Uh, God says, you know, look, I, I, I'm when I put my spirit in you, give you a new heart, put my spirit in you. It's going to cause you uh, to desire to keep my laws. Now, again, is it talking about the ceremonial laws? No. It's talking about the civil laws? No. But certainly talking about uh, those included in the moral laws. See, believers in Jesus from, from, from the time of new birth, believers in Jesus are, are schooled in holiness by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what, that's what we're learning here. From the time we're born again, the Holy Spirit is schooling every believer in holiness. The law becomes a map for living, and the Holy Spirit provides the power necessary to follow the law. So, let me wrap it up this way. The Christian is not um, under obligation. Now, this, listen very closely, okay? The Christian is not under obligation to keep the moral law as a way of earning their way to God. And we've said we keep the moral law. But again, not as a means of earning favor with God. Instead, the Christian is changed by the presence of God's Spirit to desire to keep God's law. He said, I will cause you that you will want to. You will want to. There'll be a desire. The Spirit will change our desires, and we will want to keep God's law. Because God isn't just after obedience, right? Is He after obedience? Yes. Is he after just obedience? No. He's after a whole new 
kind of obedience, an obedience that comes from love and delight in God. Christians keep the moral commands not because it's the law, but because they love God and they want to be like Him. So, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I come to fulfill it. Certainly makes clear that um, for those who teach people to keep these commands, they're going to be great in the kingdom of God. But then next week when we come back, Jesus is going to say uh, something absolutely staggering that for the believer, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, what in the world does that mean? And that's what we'll talk about next week because that is equally important. When you, when you first read that, you think, my goodness, uh, how in the world can we do that? Because when you read about the scribes and the Pharisees and, 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 and their righteousness, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, it's, it's like Mount Everest, okay? But I think we'll see uh, as we look at Jesus and what he's saying, what he means there. I think we'll, we'll, it'll, help us, it'll help us to understand it so much better. Uh, so uh, any, anything you would like to weigh in on this? Uh, should, should, we keep, should we keep, does God's law have a place in a Christian's life? It does, right? Good. Right. That's right. It's true. So law of God has a place. Uh, quick quiz. Um, uh, so law of God has a place. Uh, should you should you eat shrimp? Is it, now if you're allergic, good point. Yeah, but but will 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 avoiding shrimp make you closer to God? No. But but what if what if um, what about thou shalt not murder? Thou shalt not kill. Is that pretty important? Should we we keep that one right? Yeah, it's, wow! It's a moral. It's a moral law, right? See, so so the law of God has a place in our lives, and so um, I think I think the best best way to figure these things out is is just read the New Testament. <laughs> it'll it'll emerge. It'll emerge. It'll show itself. You see, this this question of well, what should I be following here? I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's eight o'clock, Carol. It's eight o'clock. It's time to go. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, all I can say, and this is speculation, I doubt it. I, I doubt it, seriously. Uh, yeah. There, there are actually, uh, there are actually videos on, and I, I looked into this when I was doing some research on Stephen because he was stoned to death. There, 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 are, there are numerous videos on YouTube of people in the Middle East being stoned. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's primarily women. I, I would, I wouldn't say that there's no men. I, you know, I, it, 
I, I didn't I didn't pay attention to all of them. There's numerous videos on on YouTube that um, of people being stoned in modern day. So okay, well it's two minutes after eight. Let's go home. Okay, would you stand with me? So glad you were here. Uh, you know, the, seldom is there. You know, you, you know, you ask questions like, you know, hey, uh, where is, does the law of, of God have a place? Seldom, is, you know, it's it's seldom is it an easy answer. You know, you can say yes and no, and then then you got to. You know, so I appreciate your patience tonight, and I hope hope this is helpful. Heavenly Father, um, may may we your people go. May we go under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uh, affecting our desires. May we desire this week to to love you and to love others. Because if we'll do that, if we'll do that, then we will fulfill the royal law. So uh, may your blessings be upon us as we go to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.